You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. We've been going through the book of 1 and 2 Kings as an extended meditation on cultural decline. We'll be done with that by the end of July, if you can believe it, about eight months in First and Second Kings. And today we read our second passage with King Jehu, who was made king of the northern kingdoms, uh, northern kingdom of Israel. There's now two kingdoms, Israel and then Judah in the south. And he was made king last week, and he kind of wipes out a lot of Ahab's house, which we looked at last week. It's a very bloody passage, and that bloodiness continues today. So this is Second Kings chapter 10. Verse 18, then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests, let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. This is the word of the Lord. It's always fun when the scripture reading ends with, you know, bathroom references. We don't have a graphic design person on staff at the church, and so this week I began work on a longer-term project that needed a lot of graphic design. But because I'm an incredibly prideful guy, I like to give it a shot first to see if I can do a good job. And I decided, you know, I got this good software program here, I'm going to give this a go, and I got about 20 minutes in and realized I have no idea what I'm doing. No idea what I'm doing. In fact, you don't want me to be your graphic design guy. I'm not a graphic design authority at all. Have you ever wondered what does make someone a good authority? Surely the first thing is competence, right? I'm not good at graphic design things, so we need somebody who's good at graphic design. Competence is a good part of what makes someone a good authority. But someone can have good competence, but not quite chemistry in the organization that they're a part of. They're just kind of a personality clash with the people that they work around, and so they're just not a good authority. But let's say someone has great competence, they're a good chemistry fit, but they still might not be a good authority because they have no character. 
you've probably worked for a boss at some time in your life, somebody who was really good at their job, but they had no character. And this passage today demonstrates the relationship of authority to character. Jehu, who has been made king of Israel, brushes up against three of the Ten Commandments in our passage today. Three of those Ten Commandments, and in each, he handles each of them differently, and by doing so, demonstrates how we often wield our own authority. Three different ways this morning we wield our own authority. Our ambivalent authority, our obedient authority, and our disobedient authority. Our ambivalent authority, our obedient authority, and our disobedient authority. So first, our ambivalent authority. The ambivalence here regards Jehu's use of deception. Does he break the ninth commandment or not? The ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And Jehu's whole plot that we just read about here involves massive amounts of deception. Does he break the ninth commandment or not? At the beginning of our passage that we just started to read in verses 18 and 19, Jehu has wiped out all the house of Ahab who were big worshipers of Baal, but he's in a different city now, and the people don't really know that he's not a Baal worshiper. He's actually ardently, zealously devoted to Yahweh. And he says, proclaim a solemn assembly, sanctify it, in verses 20 and 21, to get every single worshiper of Baal in this temple. So verse 21 says they've gathered from all over Israel to do this. The Baal Temple is brimming with people. Imagine the Kenny Chesney concert at Neyland Stadium, but it's not just got the 100,000 people in it. It's got 200,000 people in it, and people are just overflowing. If you were a worshiper of Baal, this would have felt like a high water mark for your worship. Like, can you believe all these people are here? This is great. But Jehu does it all in deception. In verse 23, he also wants to make sure there's no worshipers of Yahweh there. The Lord, whenever you see Lord in all caps, remember that means the true name of God, Yahweh. He says, I want to make sure there's none in there because my plan is I'm about to seal the doors and we're not going to let anybody out alive. That's what he says in verses 24 and 25. Now, regarding the violence of this, which might trouble some of you, I just refer you back to last week. I dealt with the violence of Jehu last week in an entire sermon. I'd refer you back, or you can come talk to me after the service. I'm not going to deal with the violence. Rather, I want to deal with the deception, because the reality here is that Jehu gets the right result. Yahweh doesn't want any more Baal worshipers in Israel anymore. In fact, since Israel and Judah got split from each other, Jehu is the only king in the northern kingdom that ever reverses the decline of false worship. He's the only one. And Yahweh likes that. Yahweh likes the fact that this idolatry is getting smashed, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. But Jehu does it all through deception. Was he lying or not? There's no context in the verses that we read that Yahweh found the means acceptable. And do the ends, getting rid of Baal worship, justify the means? Lying. Deception. Even Christians for thousands of years have not agreed on this question. So Augustine, way back in the 4th century, he would have held that lying is always wrong no matter what. Lying is always wrong. Sometimes, because you're forced into a choice, you have to pick the lesser of two evils. But the lesser of two evils is still an evil and it's still a sin. And that would have been Augustine's position. There are other Christians, 20th century ethicists, who would say that the context very much matters. Especially in times of war 
or times of extreme duress. People know that in times of war, there's propaganda. There is intentional lying. And that is not the same kind of sin as the breaking the ninth commandment. People know that's a part of the rules of engagement, in other words. And so lying is not wrong in that case. Even a commentator I read, Peter Lightheart, says that Yahweh is upright with the upright, but he's twisted with the twisted. And so Lightheart throws his lot behind those people who say, this is a time of extreme duress, and therefore this was not wrong of Jehu to deceive. There are still others with a slightly different view called hierarchicalism. You don't have to remember any of these names. I just want you to know that there's a debate. Hierarchicalism says that sometimes one commandment of God supersedes another because it's so important. So think of Corey ten Boom in the Holocaust who lied to the Nazis about sheltering Jews. And she didn't do anything wrong, the hierarchicalists say, because the command to lie was superseded by the command to preserve human life. Now, I'm not going to resolve the debate for you. I think all Christians agree that sometimes withholding the truth, if the truth is harsh, is okay. I think all Christians agree that truth is the standard. Absolute truth is the standard. We just sometimes debate over the murky exceptions. And I don't want to resolve the ambivalence for you. Take this example. My old boss in Colorado described a situation that once came before him. My old boss was also a As a pastor, he was also a licensed therapist, and he was meeting with a a leading couple in his church, and he had met with them for years in therapy, and they were revered by a lot of the church, but they were hiding the rot at the heart of their relationship. There was abuse, there was adultery, and there was a lot of shame that led to a lot of isolation. And eventually, the abused spouse filed for divorce. And the elders came to my boss and said, well, we need to go through church disciplinary practices. She is unlawfully pursuing divorce, and we need to discipline this person. And my boss wouldn't go along with it. And they asked him why, and he said, I can't really tell you. At this point, there were legal proceedings that bound him to confidentiality, not to mention the confidentiality that he was bound to as a licensed professional therapist. And so he wasn't going to tell them. And so then the lead elder that worked for him came to him and said, Well, if you're not going to discipline them and you're not even going to tell us anything about the circumstances behind their marriage, then we're going to leave the church if you don't tell me or if you don't discipline them. And so my boss was left with an ambivalent decision. Does he tell some things, maybe violate confidentiality a little bit in order to keep the biggest volunteer he had at the church happy and staying at the church? Or does he not say anything protect confidentiality of the vulnerable person, and that lead couple leaves the church. He chose not to say anything, and that lead couple and their whole family, three youth at the time, did in fact leave the church. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, this is a no-brainer. Like, your boss did the exact right thing he was supposed to do, but if you have ever been in an authoritative position like that, you have probably dealt with some kind of ambivalent decision that didn't seem so clear-cut when you were in the middle of the decision. Don't be so easy or don't be so quick to judge. These matters of ambivalence are common to those in authority. Might be, let's say, you've got two employees who can't get along because of personality differences that has morphed into mutual suspicion. And one of those people is more at fault, but the other person who receives the fault is really bad at handling conflict. And here's the problem. They're both good at their jobs. What do you do? It's a situation of ambivalence, isn't it? 
Or let's say you run a company and your choice is between layoffs, which you promised would never happen, or you work 80 to 90 hours a week and ignore your family for two years just to make it through. That's an ambivalent decision, isn't it? Or let's say you lead a Bible study, and there's one wounded, vulnerable person who hasn't had a safe relationship in years, and as a result, they wind up dominating the discussion of the Bible study. Has this ever happened to anybody? dominates the discussion and doesn't leave room for anybody else to share, and so people start dropping like flies in the group. What do you do? Do you privilege the vulnerable person, or do you have a really hard conversation so that the group is maintained and intact? This is an ambivalent leadership decision, isn't it? Anyone with authority faces challenging ambivalence often. So here are some takeaways for you in those moments. The first is to admit that you don't always know if you're making the right decision. Right and wrong are sometimes clear-cut, but often they're not. And it's okay just to admit it. And then when you admit it, lean into the Lord. A lot of times our prayer requests are means to an end. We want the answer. We don't actually just want to be near God. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, and then everything else gets added to you. But a lot of times we just want the answer. We want the advice from God, but we don't want God. Lean into the Lord just because you want him in those situations and times of ambivalence. Next, I think if you ever face ambivalence, I think it's important to clarify what's the most important thing at stake here in this ambivalence. Is it my reputation or is it the care of a vulnerable person? Is it the truth or is it the bottom line of the company? Take stock of what's the most important thing. And then walk through your ambivalent authority humbly. I always respect those leaders who say, I could be wrong, but a decision has to be made. And if something goes wrong, I'll take the blame for it. I could be wrong, but somebody's got to make a decision. And if there are negative consequences, own them. That's what it means to be a leader, by the way. A lot of people like the glory of leadership, but don't like the nasty stuff. And in my experience now, most of leadership is taking blame for stuff that wasn't your fault. That's why I have always revered this quote by Ronald Heifetz, who's a leadership guru. He says, the art of leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can manage. (laughs) I love that. The art of leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can manage. There's a lot of wisdom in that. I'm seeing a lot of head nods right now, so you you guys are tracking with me. Like Jehu, our authority will often be ambivalent. It's not always clear if we're doing the right thing. Sometimes, though, it is clear, which leads to our second point this morning, our obedient authority. Our obedient authority. Our passage is explicit that Jehu did right by eliminating the worship of Baal and Israel because they had had, at this point, decades-long violations of the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. So, let's read on in verse 28 of chapter 10. Just a few more verses here. Thus, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. 
Now, we'll get back to some of Jehu's imperfections in a minute. But for the time being, I want you to see that he did right by eliminating Baal worship. After everyone gets slaughtered in verse 25, all of his people go into the temple of Baal in the inner room, and they bring out its pillar, which is an object of worship, and then they destroy it. And then in verse 27, they turn the temple of Baal into an outhouse, into a urinal. I think we should take that to mean that God is not nice to our idols. God is not nice to our idols. Don't forget that. And then in verse 30, God grants blessing to Jehu's fourth generation because he has carried out what was right in my eyes. Now, again, we don't know if God actually approved of the means of Jehu's deception, but we do know he approved of the ends, that he got rid of Baal worship in Israel. Jehu is obedient to eliminate Baal worship as it was a violation of the first commandment. And that authority is commended because God is not kind to our idols. Pain, then, is often the light on the dashboard that something is wrong in our lives and perhaps God wants us to be authoritative with our own idols. He wants us to have authority over our own idols in our lives like Jehu does. You think about uh, when something is wrong with you physically, you'll do whatever it takes. You'll go to a doctor, you'll go to a second doctor and, and get a second opinion. You'll read about it online. You'll experiment with prescribed medications until the pain is dealt with in your life. But we often don't do that with spiritual or relational pain or emotional pain, do we? C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, that God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. I've used this quote before because it sticks with me. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world world because God is not gentle with our idols and sometimes the only way to get our attention is with our pain and like we would try to get our physical pain solved in any different way God is saying sometimes I want you to view your relational emotional spiritual pain that way would you do whatever it takes to get rid of the idols in your life now relational pain spiritual pain emotional pain can have many causes so we ought to at least consider that one of those causes could be idolatry deep in our hearts, something that we love, trust, or desire more than Jesus. Maybe your idol is that you need to be needed because you fear not being someone else who is needed by others, and so you fear that more than you fear God. Maybe you want to look cool because you don't like yourself that much, and you wonder if Looking cool will make someone else like you more, and so you trust someone else's opinion of you more than you trust God's opinion of you, which is that you're his beloved, cherished child. Maybe you want to fix the world, and you're so angry at all the people in your way because your desire about the way the world should look is higher and better, you think, than God's desire for what he wants to do in the world. You see, all of these things are idols that I just mentioned. And the pain you experience in your fear or your anger or your self-loathing are clues that God wants to smash an idol in your life. How can you be like Jehu and step into the obedient authority over the idols in your life? You do so by repenting more deeply. A lot of us, when we repent or say anything wrong, when we confess our sins in church or whatever, we're thinking about specific sins. Oh, I got mad at that person. I shouldn't have. God forgive me. 
I'm inviting you to repent deeper than that, which is the sin underneath your sin, which is not I got mad at that person, but God, forgive me because I'm the person who thinks that my view of the world is better than yours. And now I'm not just repenting of sins, I'm repenting of my very predilection, the sin underneath my sin, to think, desire, trust, or fear anything more than God. Repent more deeply, and then when you have, know and rest in the fact that you are still loved and forgiven by the Lord. And then if you want to take the next step, like Jehu, and start smashing idols, find a trusted Christian friend and say, let's develop a game plan that we can talk about together to where this thing that is festering in my soul can be addressed, whatever that game plan might be. And if you've never really been a Christian before because you realize, oh my goodness, I've never really repented like that. I've never repented of the sin underneath my sin, the very predilection I have towards idolatry, to trust, desire, or fear something more than God. And come talk to me after the service. You might not be a Christian, and I'd love to invite you to follow Jesus, maybe for the first time in your life. All of this is an obedient way to be an authority over the idols in your life. Now let's get to our final point this morning, our disobedient authority. Our disobedient authority. You might have caught in our reading just a minute ago that while Jehu was authoritative with the first commandment, he was disobedient with another one. In verse 29, it says that Jehu still allowed golden calves that King Jeroboam had set up way back in 1 Kings 12. This was many, 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 many decades ago. And Jeroboam set up golden calves in Israel. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, but I thought Jehu got rid of all the idols. What is he doing here still allowing Jeroboam's golden calves to be set up in Bethel and Dan? You have to remember that when Jeroboam had these calves set up, just like Israel did in the wilderness, when Moses was on the mountain and Aaron made golden calves, it was the same sin. The golden calves were set up to Yahweh. Behold your gods who delivered you out of Egypt. And when Jeroboam set up the golden calves, it was the same thing. These were supposed to be golden calves of Yahweh. Jeroboam and now Jehu after him are not breaking the first commandment to have no other gods. They're breaking the second commandment an oft-forgotten one in a highly visual culture like ours, you shall have no graven images of me. Jeroboam was violating the second commandment, which is why verse 31 says that Jeroboam was not careful to follow the Lord. He had narrowed Israel's worship to Yahweh alone, but unfortunately he had neglected the second commandment. Jehu was really obedient with one commandment, the first. He was negligent. With the second, this is an experience I unfortunately can identify with. I bet you can too. Really vigilant to uphold some of the things God wants of you, but you have a blind spot about other things. The most immediate example that came to my mind, especially when I was new at pastoring, people would come to the church, they'd be new to the church, they'd come from some other church, and maybe you've had a conversation like this with me before, and the saying kind of goes like this. People go, this is what, everything that was wrong with my last church, and this is why I love this church so much. People at my last church, when I was going through a hard time, they didn't reach out to me, or the pastors never called me. And I, early on in my pastoral ministry, I'd say, oh, yeah, well, I would hope that we would never do that here. Or at my last church, they started getting into all this false teaching, and in my pride, I'd go, oh, I'd never do that. And then... I started realizing, 
at my last church and here, people started leaving the church. And they'd say, oh, it's, you know, Pastor Dave never dealt with the conflict that I needed him to deal with. Or, man, Pastor Dave brags about himself an awful lot. And I realized, oh my goodness, even if I'm vigilant to uphold certain things the Lord wants of me, I am negligent in other ways. I'm not careful, much like Jehu. Now, when people tell me how terrible their last church was, I freely offer, hey, well, we're not going to be a perfect church, and I'm probably going to disappoint you at some point because I'm not perfect. Someone at this church will disappoint you. Just get a ticket and get in line. <laughs> but at least, at least we're trying, right? How about you? Are there certain commandments you're better at following, but you are not careful in other ways like Jehu? You proudly announce to others, I'm never judgmental. Just like that guy over there is always judging people, but you're a glutton and you indulge your selfish pleasures whenever you want. We might call that the sin of irreligiosity. But then there's the sin of religiosity. All these people with their sexual sins and, and all these bad things that they do and you're just twice a child of hell, as Jesus says, by being judgmental. Well, what about this? What about like Jehu? You ardently devote yourself to the worship of the true God, but your whole faith relies on the visual, constantly putting screens in front of your face as opposed to hearing the word of God and being with him in silence. The truth is, no matter how careful we are, we'll never measure up to be a perfect authority. All of us, even at our best, are Jehu. All of us. And that's why we need to, with our whole hearts and lives, trust and desire and fear the true greatest human authority of all, Jesus Christ, who never sinned. In Christ, we have a king who was and is perfectly obedient for our sakes. And when he comes along, instead of smashing our idols or smashing us like he could, instead he gets smashed for us, taking on the penalty of us not being great authorities so that we could rely upon him with our whole lives, the most loving authority of all. Let's pray. Our Father, for whatever authority you have given us by the power of your Spirit, help us to walk into it simply because Jesus is our great authority, the great King over our lives and of this church. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.